I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, at the Constitution Center, we are celebrating the opening of a new exhibit, Hamilton, The Constitutional Clashes That Shaped a Nation. This compelling new exhibit highlights the competing constitutional ideas of Hamilton and his legendary rivals, including Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and Burr, and the personality and constitutional debates that shaped America. There are so many fascinating artifacts that are being installed right outside the podcast studio as I speak, including Hamilton's portable writing desk from the late 1780s, handwritten regulations for the duel between Hamilton and Aaron Burr, and exact replicas of the original Hamilton-Burr dueling pistols, including the hair trigger that was on Hamilton's that I'm going to ask our guests a bit about uh, if we have time soon. Um, It's now my honor to introduce two of Americans' leading scholars and thinkers about Hamilton's life, legacy, and constitutional thought, as well as those of uh, the other founding fathers. Jay Cost is a political historian and a contributing editor at the Weekly Standard and a contributor to the National Review. He's the author of the new book, The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the Creation of American Oligarchy. Nancy Eisenberg is an American historian and T. Harry Williams Professor of History at Louisiana State University. She is the author of Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, and co-author with Andrew Burstein of a dual biography of Madison and Jefferson, and I've just learned author of the forthcoming book about the Adamses. Jay, Nancy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in and introduce our listeners to Alexander Hamilton's constitutional vision. Jay, in a piece in the National Review on progressive Hamiltonians, you said, uh, with the possible exception of Governor Morris, Hamilton was the most unabashedly elitist man to sign the Constitution. His proposed system of government was distinctively high-toned, and then you gave examples of his vision of a pop- of uh, the Senate, the presidency, and the judiciary. Tell us about Hamilton's constitutional vision of those three branches, and how would you characterize it more broadly? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks again for having me. Um, Hamilton, like many of the fellow founders of the era, was struggling with an ancient question inherent to good government, which was, how do we create a, a government that serves the public interest without falling prey to corruption, uh, be it corruption for the sake of the elites, which would be you know oligarchy, or for the sake of the masses, which would be mob rule? How do we create a stable government? And one of the main sort of ideas in the Western tradition at that time was the notion of mixed estates, right? The idea being that a popularly elected legislature would be balanced by maybe some hereditary element in the legislature, like a House of Lords, and then checked again by... um, by a a hereditary monarch. And the Americans had tossed out the idea of hereditary titles and had founded a government on popular rule entirely. 
a problem was is that in the ensuing decade between you know the Declaration of Independence and the ratification of the Constitution, it didn't seem to be working. Uh, the the national government, the Confederation Congress, was more or less inept, with the exception of dealing with. Um, you know, the disposition of the Western lands and some basic foreign policy functions. It couldn't tax, couldn't regulate commerce. Uh, and then you had these 13 state governments were, which were increasingly irresponsible and very, very democratic by the standards of the age, pristinely democratic. So it looked as though democracy had become kind of an Ouroboros, right? That, Repu that Republican government required popular majority, popular rule in some sense, but that left unchecked, it would ultimately consume itself. And this is where Hamilton enters the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and in a speech in June offers a plan of government which would have a popularly elected House of Representatives, but his Senate would be not popularly elected, but rather chosen by an electoral college. Uh, and the presidency would actually be chosen by two sets of electoral colleges. And both the Senate and the president would have uh, life tenure basically just on good behavior. And the basic premise of the Hamiltonian system was uh, or can be appreciated by a letter that he wrote to William Duane in the 17 in 1780 when he was just 25 years old. He told Duane that the problem with democracy is not democracy in and of itself, but that it's been made to run through improper channels. And so what we need to do is check and temper democracy. And Hamilton's system basically drew on the classical notion of hereditary mixed estates without actually having hereditary titles. And his hope or expectation was is that liberated from the petty concerns of electoral politics and the impetuous passions of the masses that a, uh, uh, that a life-tenured executive and a Senate which uh, whose members could serve for life tenure would be able to to sort of guide and manage public opinion as expressed through the House of Representatives. Thanks so much for that. Nancy, you have written a piece for the Washington Post saying liberals love Alexander Hamilton, but Aaron Burr was a real progressive hero. We'll talk more about Burr in a bit, but tell us why Hamilton is an improbable hero for liberals given his constitutional vision. And in light of what Jay said, how is it possible to reconcile Hamilton's support for life tenure for the Senate and presidency with the notion that we the people have the sovereign power. Yeah, I, this is one of the problems when history goes public or popular writers reinterpret the founders, and this has been going on for, since the early 19th century, reinterpret them in a way that suits contemporary needs. Uh, historians are more interested in understanding, in my case, Burr and Hamilton in the context of the 18th and the early 19th century. Um, and, and part of the problem is that the, the Burr that we all know now is coming mainly through Miranda's musical, which paints him as a Democrat, paints him as an abolitionist, paints him as uh, a, a, a figure who is pro-industry that somehow he imagined the America that we have today. Um, now, in some sense, yes, Hamilton is pro-industry, but not according to the rules of the economy that exists today. Um, and what we have to realize about Alexander Hamilton is Jay's right. He very much assumed that the government, the federal government, needed to be in the hands of a ruling elite. Uh, so did James Madison. James Madison actually envisioned 
his plan for the Constitution would have made the Senate the most powerful body. And he wanted that to be uh, an intellectual elite that would be checking not only the, the House, but also even being able to reject laws that were passed in the state legislature. So we have to realize that 18th century people like John Adams grappled with the idea of an oligarchy, grappled with the idea of a ruling elite, but they really imagined that the people who needed to be elected to government needed to have expertise, needed to have an elite educational background, and they were very skeptical of democracy. They realized that democracy um, has its problems, which we know today it has its problems, that the mass media can manipulate people. We know that lies now travel faster on the internet than the truth. So they were grappling with the same problem of what is, and I think Jay mentioned the, the problem of improper channels. This was an issue that would lead to the party divide. Um, but to understand Madison, to understand Hamilton's way of looking at the government, if we go back and we have to realize that Hamilton didn't stay at the whole constitutional convention. Both Hamilton and Madison were upset with the final draft of the Constitution. But where Hamilton recognized the importance of a federal government is that he, he was deeply concerned with making sure that the new federal government would be more like the government in England, in Great Britain. And what he wanted was a fiscal military state and his major concerns. And these are the things that he made sure and tried to institute when he come, becomes secretary of the treasury. But his main concerns were to have a stable tax base. And he was very concerned with having a disciplined military. Uh, and this basic formula that there was a direct connection to the strength of a government came from uh, an adequate military and came from being able to extract resources from its citizens. And those resources were money and soldiers. Um, and this isn't surprising that he was deeply concerned with the military because throughout the American Revolution, there were serious problems <laughs> with funding the Continental Army. This became a crucial and struggling issue that proved that the existing government uh, from Hamilton's perspective was not working effectively. So for, from Hamilton's perspective, and he's also very modern, he is not obsessed with the ideas of civic virtue in the same way that John Adams is. He very much believes that interests, the interests of people have to be mobilized. Uh, in they, and this means mobilizing wealthy investors, wealthy speculators, that these people have to be encouraged and rewarded to support the federal government. So we really have to imagine that Hamilton is not someone who would in any way today match the interests of the Democratic Party or progressives in this country, because he did very much align himself and was comfortable with the idea of a wealthy property-based ruling elite and also mobilizing capital of the, the wealthy elite. Um, and this becomes really important to the way he imagines his first report on public credit, why he puts the National Bank as the, the crucial issue in his second report on public credit. Um, and then finally, the way in which he, he also believes that there needs to be state sponsor of industry and manufacturing. Um, so he's modern in the sense that he does want to support a commercial economy, 
Um, he does believe a commercial economy will produce more wealth. He wanted a stable currency, <laughs> and this was essential to getting people to pay their taxes. So in many ways, he had, uh, as I said, it all goes back to this fiscal military state image that he borrowed from Great Britain and other European countries, but specifically Great Britain. I mean, he wanted our national bank. The model he had was the, the Bank of England. So his foremost concerns were economic issues, economic stability. And I think the other thing, not only was there a problem funding the military during the war, but there also was a serious problem, as Jay alluded to, is that the problem with the Continental Congress was that, you know, states could simply protect their own interests. They didn't need to come to any kind of national agreement on issues. Um, and this meant that states could simply reject what was in the needs, the best interests of the nation at large. Um, and this is, you know, this is why we have a federal system, which is intended to balance the federal government and the state government. Uh, but that model also has certain limitations. That was kind of the compromise that was arrived at during the Constitutional Convention, where Hamilton really did want a stronger executive. He wanted uh, uh, the federal government to have power to raise and maintain an army, and he specifically wanted a federal government that would be able to tax uh, and that would promote commerce because that would produce more taxable income. Uh, one other thing where Hamilton was quite astute is his emphasis on the fact that the government, the federal government should be light and inconspicuous. And when he was first coming up with his tax ideas, um, at the time of thinking about how should you tax the American people, because even back then there was an opposition to taxation, he supported the idea of indirect tax, tax on trade, customs. And that way people wouldn't feel the tax collector uh, sort of demanding from them uh, money in a direct fashion where they would feel that money's coming out of their pockets. So this is something that, that Hamilton was very aware of. And this is where he diverged from the English model because the English were more, were taxed at higher rates. Um, and he believed that given the lack of economic development in the United States, we weren't as commercialized um, as Great Britain, that he felt the, that, that the country really needed to create the means for raising taxes, but not in a way that would create opposition and hostility to, to raising taxes for the federal government. Um, and, and that was really important to him. Great. Thanks for that. So we have a sense from uh, both Nancy and Jay that Hamilton was a nationalist serving the ruling elite by supporting a strong presidency, uh, Senate, and federal government to uh, support uh, the military and uh, financial power of the United States. We next turn to Madison, uh, and we're going to contrast his constitutional vision with that of Hamilton. Jay, happily, your new book is on precisely that topic, The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the creation of the American oligarchy. It's almost harder to think of a larger question than summarizing Madison's constitutional vision, but if you can uh, distill the essence of uh, Madison's vision when it comes to the question of faction, why was it that he emphasized uh, a Republican system more than Hamilton's emphasis on economic growth? And, and how would you contrast Madison's constitutional vision with that of Hamilton? 
Yeah, those are uh, weighty questions. I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll do my best. Thank you so um, much. I, I like to compare and contrast Hamilton and Madison by use of a contemporary analogy, uh, which would, would be football, um, American football. I, I would say um, in a letter to George Washington in 1787, James Madison said that the great desideratum or the great necessity of government is some sort of neutral umpire, which basically can arbitrate fairly amongst different factions or social, economic, religious groups with an eye to protecting individual rights and promoting the general welfare. So Madison, I sort of view as being um, in favor of good referees. He saw the government as serving the function that referees do in, uh, in a football game. Hamilton, on the other hand, I would say that Hamilton more saw the government as a kind of a head coach um, in the, uh, you know, Madison's Federalist 10 is sort of taken as the ultimate sort of the er text of Madisonian political philosophy. Uh, I would sort of characterize Hamilton's Federalist, Federalist 11 as sort of his fundamental text, uh, because in Federalist 11, he talks about one great American system. Uh, which would be built upon commerce and international strength. And what that really required was an energetic government to promote coordination among different factions, uh, ultimately for the purpose of harmony. Right. Uh, so whereas Hamilton was favorable to elite economic actors, the, particularly the creditors on the eastern seaboard, he wasn't he didn't behave in that way simply to line their own pockets. For instance, Samuel Chase in the early 1780s was basically speculating on the price of flour. And in these stinging essays under the pseudonym Publius, interestingly enough, Hamilton just blasted um, Chase for that. He was not in favor of speculative, you know, trading on your public information for private gain for its own purposes. Instead, Hamilton sort of saw the economic elites as, as mediators of the general welfare. So it's almost sort of like a head coach where you, 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 you start your best players and you bench your sort of second raters. And Hamilton's view was that the long run prosperity of the United States required a certain level of favoritism in the short run. And I think that's sort of the key way to di differentiate between the two of them and also helps to understand uh, Madison's constitutional system, whereas Hamilton wanted to sort of liberate a kind of natural aristocracy in the Senate and the presidency to sort of pursue the, the national interest. Um, he also favored the use of patronage uh, to sort of bribe members of Congress as the need might arise. Madison did not have that kind of faith in the elites. I mean, he was certainly, uh, you know, like most men of the age, believed in such a thing as natural aristocracy. But if you, you know, he was also very skeptical of the actual people who were in, in power. And I think that the way to understand Madison's political philosophy is that rather than sort of hang the government on these separating the elites from the few from the many, Madison was instead interested in well ordered political conflict. His view was that, you know, elite factions, popular factions, all of them are capable of overrunning uh, Republican government, undermining the general welfare, violating individual rights, and that the way to sort of stop this from happening was to set up a political system whereby no one group could overrun the others, and that it, it that would require them to bargain with each other, to negotiate with each other, that it would sort of create a, a robust political process. And Madison's view was that in that kind of process, sort of ill intent Right. Bad designs, proposals that violated, you know, 
the general welfare undermined individual rights would eventually get checked and sort of you know defeated and that ultimately with the policies that could run the gauntlet of a well-ordered political system would be those that are consistent with America's true interests. Thank you so much for that. Um, Nancy, the same question to you. The contrast is between Hamilton and Madison, and how would you contrast uh, Madison's republicanism with Hamilton's focus on elitism? Um, First of all, I think Jay is right that one of the important metaphors for Madison is this idea of being an umpire between contending interests. Um, He assumed that there would be conflict, that there would be disagreements, and and mainly he assumed that this would be class-based. Um, And this was also widely accepted in the 18th century, that there were classes, that essentially they had different interests. And as Jay mentioned earlier, the whole mixed idea of government assumed that, that, again, is based on the English model, is that you have uh, the president who is based on an elected monarch, and you have the Senate that was going to act in the capacity of the House of Lords, and then you have the House, which was more democratic, that these were contending interests. And supposedly, in the the mixed government model, it was the president who was to act as an umpire. But as I already mentioned, uh, when Madison went to the Constitutional Convention, he really wanted the Senate to be the most powerful. And another metaphor that he uses is filtration. I mean, he really believed that, and this is a different metaphor for checks and balances, but he believed as Jay was suggesting, that the that essentially the best government eventually, the best laws should eventually rise to the top as they are filtered through different branches of government. And that this would also cleanse the law, would purify the law. Um, and this was important to him because he had been, he had seen the kind of legislation that was coming out of the Virginia House uh, and felt that it was not the kind of legislation that was beneficial. He saw the rise of demagogues. He was very deeply concerned with demagoguery. Um, this is one of the issues that he raises in Federalist 10. And you have to realize that Federalist 10 really becomes an important debating point. Uh, it's, a, it's promoted by political science in the early 20th century. The Federalist papers at the time they were written didn't carry the same kind of weight. It doesn't mean that it And both Madison and Hamilton in the 1790s move away from some of the arguments that they made in the Federalist Papers. But what he essentially assumed, he did assume that there needed to be a contest, there needed to be a process for purifying the laws, that there would be class disputes, class controversy. This was, you know, where he was very realistic. And so was Hamilton very realistic about that. As I said, he knew you had to mobilize interests. And it's true, he didn't like people who personally speculated. But uh, essentially, when he comes up for his design for um, assuming the debts and for refinancing and funding the debt. Um, the, the federal government was giving very generous, generous interest rates that he knew that the speculators who had bought up all the securities uh, from poor veterans, from poor farmers, because we tend to forget that there was a very serious depression following the revolution. So even though he didn't directly endorse speculating, he created a system which speculators were going to take advantage of, and they did. And many of the speculators 
uh, we're in Congress. <laughs> and, and Hamilton was really direct. He believed that you needed to mobilize this wealthy elite and you had to weave their interests and connect them to the federal government. So this is something we debate today. We feel very uncomfortable with the power of lobbyists, even though they also are intertwined and are influencing our elected officials. Hamilton was very open. He felt you had to mobilize these people. You had to get them interested in supporting the government. Um, and he never really wavered from that. Uh, and he was also, he was, he, and this is where we get back to Madison again. I mean, we have to realize that Madison's vision, what's so interesting about Madison and Hamilton is both of them were deeply disappointed with the final draft of the Constitution. They both had very different visions of what they wanted, and the final document was not what they wanted. Uh, Madison slogged it out and tried to protect certain interests. Many of the issues he supported were voted down. So it's incorrect to call Madison the father of the Constitution. Um, the Constitution was created and hammered out, <laughs> uh, and different people, people we tended to forget about, um, also influenced the direction of the, and the shape of the final Constitution. Um, so yes, we have to accept that Hamilton had an elitist vision. We have to accept that his elitist vision was attached to mobilizing men of property, mobilizing men of wealth. Um, we have to recognize that Madison's view was was more of an intellectual view in the sense that he believed that ideally the best laws, if you create enough checks and balances, the best laws will survive. But he's going to change his opinion, too. I mean, once we're in the 1790s, once the anti-administration party forms, which is being headed really first by Madison before Jefferson, uh, in opposite, opposition to Hamilton's policies, um, he also begins to shift his focus. And in the 1790s, he begins to argue for the importance of mobilizing public opinion, educated public opinion. Uh, of uh, He helps set up uh, an anti-administration newspaper uh, that is edited by one of his close friends from Princeton, Freneau, uh, who, who we all know as the famous poet. Uh, so he, the thing that's so fascinating about Madison is his views change over time. And that's why we can't just understand his view of the constitution. At, even at the time of the, if you look at what he had, what he planned before the constitution and then during the constitution, he changes his mind at the end of the constitution, he changes his mind. And then in the 1790s, he changes his mind again. I'll give you an example of this. For example, one of the newspaper debates that Hamilton and Madison have is over whether the government has the right to, uh, to create corporations. And this is one of the key elements of Hamilton's plan for establishing a national bank. Madison is going to argue that no, the Constitution does not grant the federal government the right this right or power to create corporations. Well, this directly contradicts what Madison said during the Constitutional Convention. He supported the idea of establishing a national university, something that Washington endorsed. Um, and this would have required creating a corporate entity. <laughs> um, so this is, this is why it's really difficult to kind of put people in boxes and assume we know exactly where they stood on certain issues. Uh, but I think it's generally right to think of Madison as interested in a system of filtration, in a system of where the best argument should win. That's very much part of the Enlightenment idea of the Republic of Letters. 
and that Hamilton, as Jay referred to, rather than a football coach, most people believe that Hamilton modeled his role as secretary of state on being a prime minister. Uh, and, and Hamilton um, didn't work as well with other people. He was not as keen, and this is why he left the Constitutional Convention, in having to slog out arguments and, and negotiate with people. He much rather preferred being in charge. He much rather preferred delegating to others. He had a very charismatic and controversial personality. So the people who liked him, followed him and endured him. And we could even describe a little hero worship on, on many of the followers in the Federalist Party. But at the same time, he stepped on people's toes left and right. As prime minister, he engaged in activities that belonged to Thomas Jefferson as secretary of state. Um, so when we try to figure that out their policies, their personalities also come into play. Um, and we have to we get back to this basic idea that the way in which the federal, the way in which they interpret the federal constitution, uh, does not stay constant. It has to do with contingencies. What are they responding? What are the problems? What are the issues that that face them in the 1790s? And here we can see how they begin to change their opinions. But where Hamilton stays true is in, in increasing the powers of the executive, um, a, a top-down organization, uh, and that. Madison much more believes that there needs to be debate, and he shifts from the idea of the debate in the Senate, which is the idea he, he imagines during the Constitutional Convention to the 1790s, where debate has to be happening in the newspapers, and he celebrates the importance of public opinion as a way to check the overreach of the federal government. Great. Now it's time for a brief break. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. There's credit for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Well, it is now time to contrast the constitutional vision of Hamilton with Thomas Jefferson. In the Constitution Center's new Hamilton exhibit, we have an original uh, to-do list written by Thomas Jefferson, which captures his main disagreements with Hamilton, including limiting the power of the national government and bolstering that of the states. That's from 1792. And Jay, you have written in your uh, piece on uh, progressive Hamiltonians that Hamilton's elitism explains why he was so disdained by the pre-progressive American left, while the Jeffersonian Republican and Jacksonian Democrats uh, had an enduring legacy, which was a more democratic United States. So another huge compare and contrast question, but please contrast, if you will, the constitutional vision of Hamilton with that of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> that's another big one. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, so I would I would suggest that if, if Madison put, placed his faith in well-ordered political conflict and Hamilton placed his faith in um, – in, you know, sort of a natural aristocracy, which, by the way, sort of lent itself to oligarchy because Hamilton sort of figured essentially that people who were very wealthy had proven themselves to be naturally natural aristocrats. I think Jefferson had a, a great faith in or, or greater faith in the masses. So I would not say that Jefferson is a Democrat in sort of the modern sense, but relative to these other sort of um, these other 
thinkers of the age that Jefferson was the most democratic. I'll give you a few examples of that. I mean, for instance, in these sort of really interesting letters that Madison and Jefferson wrote each other in the, I think the early 1790s, they're debating issues of the public debt and what uh, ultimately comes up or the sort of foundational Jeffersonian argument is that one generation of the people cannot bind another generation, that every generation is sovereign in all matters uh, as regards to it. Um, And so Jefferson from that concludes that debts should not extend for more than 20 years. Now, Madison pushes back on this and says, no, 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 you know, there are things that are, you know, debts that are accrued as sort of investments like the Revolutionary War would be an example of that, uh, but sort of speaks to Jefferson's view of the sovereignty of the, of the, of the people. Uh, similarly, Jefferson sort of proposes an idea of constitutional conventions happening periodically to avoid, frankly, what we have in the United States, which is sort of dead hand control. Uh, we have a, this pristinely democratic document that, or at least relatively, uh, that was sort of ratified by 1,400 delegates representing thousands upon thousands of citizens, but it all happened in 1788, and we're sort of stuck with, you know, this generation in the 1780s got to pick, and we're sort of stuck with it. Jefferson was dubious of things like that and sort of favored uh, greater popular control. Madison pushes back on this in the Federalist Papers that said, oh, well, public opinion, I think the word that he uses is it can be too ticklish, that it's best not to upset set public opinion by revisiting such fundamental questions. So, and in the Jeffersonian scheme, I think you can think of the Jeffersonian scheme as sort of being a series of concentric circles. So with local government being the main point of interaction that people experience and local government would, you know, uh, settle issues like, um, like education. So Jefferson had an expansive view of public education, but that it would happen on a local level. And as you move further out, you get the state governments, which are sort of in charge of, you know, the militia and also, um, you know, public transportation. And the federal government's role would mainly be limited to interacting with foreign affairs. So this is a very different, if Hamilton's vision is sort of more you know, top down, Jefferson's is more bottom up. And as Nancy suggested, it's it's important not to, you know, box Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison in by contemporary categories. So when I say that he's sort of a small D Democrat, I mean, it's, you know, it's important to remember that he is, you know, a slaveholder and he does not free his slaves when he dies. He's not a Democrat in the modern sense of the word, but relative to his sort of contemporaries, uh, there he I would say that on the spectrum of, of you know how sympathetic you are to the wisdom of the masses, Hamilton and Jefferson occupy uh, divergent views on that. Great, thanks for that. Uh, Nancy, uh, Jefferson versus Hamilton, discuss. Right. Um, Well, I think one of the points that Jay mentions is that Jefferson really believed that constitutions should be constantly revised. And this is the debate that he mentions that he has with Madison. And Madison was annoyed because Madison had slogged it out at the Constitutional Convention. Jefferson had not been there. He didn't realize how difficult it was to get people to agree on much of anything. Um, And the idea, if you think about trying at, you know, every you know, and he, he talked about generations, you know, every 18 to 20 years that we would be revising our federal constitution. You can imagine how messy this would be. Um, but what part of what Jefferson felt, he was very opposed uh, to 
when he, he had a very strong anti-English, anti-monarchy. He referred to the, the Federalists as monocrats. This is the language that he used. And he had more faith in majority rule. And I think that's kind of more accurate because it's hard to paint Jefferson uh, even as a small D Democrat in some ways, because Virginia did so little to actually reform voting rights. And when Jefferson did try to make reforms, so this is kind of one of, you know, one of his saddest defeats, when he did try to improve uh, just public education uh, in the state of Virginia. And, and this is where he uses that rather upsetting metaphor of raking from the rubbish, <laughs> when he was talking about providing a few of the young, bright uh, boys who didn't come from wealthy families and that their education should be subsidized. The planter elite in Virginia voted it down. Um, so this, this is one of the things that always constrained Jefferson is that Virginia was very much ruled by a planter elite, by an oligarchy. Um, and therefore in the early years, uh, when he is engaging in revising Virginia laws, um, he makes attempts, but many of his attempts failed. And we also know that, that Jefferson's views of political involvement of the you know, masses, really, it's not in Virginia where democracy gets introduced. Um, it's really in Pennsylvania and New York. And this is why I referred to Burr as being more democratic. Burr was more willing to consort with people who weren't of the elite um, and, and this is one of the, and, and actually called for reforming suffrage laws. Um, this is one of the reasons why we have to realize that Jefferson was very idealist, idealistic. He wished that there would be more power placed in the majority, that the masses and their views would be taken into account in forming legislation. But where Jefferson's very elitist is he's really of the Enlightenment school of being a social engineer. So if we look at his Northwest Ordinance, where he's going to eliminate titles and eliminate slavery, he really believed that the environment, if, if again, an intellectual elite comes up with a design, that people who are like subjects in an experiment move into that area, they will gradually over, over time acquire the right values, the right morals, um, and th this is where we have to sort of realize that Jefferson was uh, more elitist as being a social engineer. Madison was much more of an advocate for minority rights. And this is something, this is the debate that he also has with Jefferson. Majority rule is not always uh, something that respects the interest of minorities. Um, and this is where Madison strongly agreed, disagreed with Madison, um, that you have to take into account that minorities w are often subject to ridicule, to attack, um, and their rights have to be protected as well. So when we try to sort of sort out, and then we bring in Hamilton, <laughs> you know, Hamilton really did believe that the, the economic issues he was more pragmatic. He was more structural in terms of building a strong, vigorous government uh, that would create a strong government in the English model. He's more modern because he does want to uh, advance the cause of supporting manufacturers. Uh, but we have to realize that both Jefferson and Hamilton have serious blind spots when it comes to thinking about who's doing the labor 
in this economy that they imagine for the future. Uh, Jefferson really, not only does he not free his slaves at the end of his life, uh, we have to realize that, as we know, even though the revolutionaries, there are attempts to institute manumissions, there's Jefferson's attempt to create a formula for freeing slaves, but we also know that the Southern economy, the agrarian Southern economy, depended heavily on slave labor. Um, and as I've said before, Alexander Hamilton, we know that he bought at least two slaves. His father-in-law owned at least 27 slaves. So he's not an abolitionist either. But he really, when he imagined, because he's basing it on the English model, when he imagined introducing industry into the United States, he said it's the, the groups that need to be tapped to work in the factories are women and children, and even wrote children of a tender age. Uh, and I always like reminding people that we had child labor was legal in this country until 1919. Um, so the dark side with Hamilton is recognizing that you're going to exploit women and children in factories. And Jefferson's model has this legacy that we're always struggling with, which was, in a sense, an agrarian society, and even his yeomans, as scholars have shown, his yeomans who were the most successful were the ones who inherited slaves. Uh, the idea that there's a free, independent Southern yeomanry uh, was, again, more of a fantasy than a reality. Uh, when we look at Southerners, not only in terms of the economic structure in Virginia, but as those Southerners begin to move westward. Um, and as we know, slavery moved westward, and Virginia was one of the major producers and contributors to the domestic slave trade. So even ending the international slave trade, which was part of the constitutional agreement, uh, slavery grows and expands because slavery was rooted in the reproduction of slavery. In fact, what made a slave in Virginia, and this goes back to laws in the 1600s, was that one was a child born of a female slave. So your slave status was inherited. It was passed through the female line. And no one of significance who had power, whether it was Jefferson or Madison and even Hamilton, were doing anything to curb the growth of the domestic slave trade. Great. Well, we have two more founders to put on the table. And our next uh, compare and contrast is Hamilton versus Alexander Burr. Uh, Jay, I'll ask you about Burr in a second. His constitutional vision is less familiar, as are the facts of the Duel and Nancy's article on uh, why uh, Burr was a real progressive hero. She notes that although the musical suggests the duel was fought over the election of 1800, the real cause was that Hamilton insulted Burr before a group of prominent men when Burr ran for New York governor. And Nancy says in this piece that Burr uh, was uh, a disciple of the Enlightenment, an advocate for criminal justice reform, freedom of the press, women's rights, the rights of immigrants, as well as uh, being a skilled innovator in interest of democracy, working to make elections, financial services, and even the U.S. Senate more fair and transparent. So he certainly sounds more uh, small-D democratic than Hamilton. Uh, Jay, how would you describe the constitutional vision of Aaron Burr? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Burr has suffered sort of in the same way that uh, Hamilton once suffered, but no longer does, where uh, the victors get to write the narrative. So the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians were able to, um, you know, defeat the high federalist of Hamilton, Ham Hamilton uh, basically for all intents and purposes, absorbed it while after having defeated it. Um, and then we're basically able to write Hamilton out of the 
you know, political narrative. It was only really in the late 19th century where, you know, the modern economy, um, people like Henry Cabot Lodge began to see a value that had been overlooked, uh, that Hamilton sort of spoke to um, anxieties about or their you know, spoke in some way to the modern economy that had emerged uh, over the course of the 19th century. And Burr ends up sort of having a similar fate as being, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the uh, slayer of Hamilton and then also the uh, attempted usurper of Jefferson in the election of 1800. He sort of, you know, basically alienates everybody and then gets, you know, brought up on, you know, uh, treason charges and his you know, pretty much his only friend is Luther Martin by that point, uh, the obstreperous attorney general of Maryland. Um, and so it's easy to sort of overlook um, Burr's unique contribution. Um, and I would just I, I'll leave to, 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 to Nancy the, the broad brushes of his political philosophy. But I, I, I do want to point out um, you can get a flavor for that um, in his intrepid efforts in the lead up to the election of 1800, the contest between uh, the rematch between Jefferson and Adams. So the way uh, electoral college votes were still not in the main allocated by popular plebiscites. The Constitution gives state legislatures the the authority to select electors. So you you really had this sort of hodgepodge. And the rules in New York State were such that I'll, I'll spare you the technical details, but the rules in New York State were such that the election was the entirety of the national election was really going to hinge upon the results in New York City. Um, that New York City would elect uh, senators to the New York legislature who would be the, the swing vote and swing all of New York's electors. And so what Burr ends up doing is he creates really the first on the ground urban political party. And, and it's very multifaceted. I mean, he, he begins a process by creating alternative financial entities to sort of, you know, because the Federalists controlled the main, you know, the Bank of the United States and also the Bank of um, the Bank of New York was a pro Hamilton bank. So Burr creates other financial entities. And he also uh, ends up sort of mobilizing the immigrant groups in New York City to vote. And he does a very impressive job of sort of selecting uh, August characters for whom they can vote for the for, for the Senate elections. Just a really impressive job. And he out-hustles Hamilton. Uh, and in so doing, he basically mobilizes, really, if insofar as New York was divided along socioeconomic lines at that point, Burr really sort of ends up overcoming the natural advantages that Hamilton's upscale voters have through really intrepid political organization that in many respects, sort of if Hamilton um, sort of has a kind of a far-sighted appreciation of what's coming along economic lines, you can look at Burr's efforts in 1800, 1799, 1800 in New York, sort of seeing the future of you know mass mobilization of voters and sort of organization, political organization as a way to overcome the sort of the informational advantages and the economic advantages that the wealthy have over the poor. Thank you for that. Nancy, uh, of course, listeners should read your uh, great biography, Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, for the full details. But you argue that Burr was uh, advanced compared to his peers in terms of women's equality, as well as taking uh, positions that seem far more progressive than that of Alexander Hamilton. Tell us about the constitutional vision of that underappreciated founder, Aaron Burr. 
Well, I think I, I think that uh, Jay did a really good job talking about the way in which Burr understood politics on the ground and the importance of organizing. And what's interesting is that actually came from his military career when he had been uh, been an officer and in charge of young men on the neutral zone and how to organize them, how to deal uh, with mobilizing men. And that's what in, it's interesting because we know that Hamilton had his military background, but what he was doing through the, out the war had less to do with direct oversight over men, which was different from Burr's background and career. Uh, the other thing is that Burr was a natural teacher and educator. Um, and this is where we can really see the importance of his enlightenment ideas um, in the area, I mean, this is one of the things that is most troubling about the Hamilton musical is that Angelica Schuyler is turned into a radical and a feminist. Well, that's really misleading when, in fact, the real feminist was Aaron Burr, his wife, Theodosia, and his daughter, Theodosia. Uh, it was Burr who read Mary Wollstonecraft, who was the leading Enlightenment supporter of women's rights and supporter of women's education. And Burr openly said, and this is something he had decided to do with his wife, that they were going to educate their daughter, give their daughter the same education as a young man to prove that women were the intellectual equals of men. Now, this put him in a very, very small camp. <laughs> uh, Jefferson did not subscribe to these ideas. Hamilton certainly didn't exactly. Hamilton actually attacked Burr during the election of 1800, bringing up this idea that he was a supporter of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, that he had the, he believed in these radical ideas. Uh, John Adams, uh, we know that John Adams and Abigail Adams, Abigail Adams wanted to uh, teach their daughter Latin, and John Adams said no. So even John Adams was not as, as far-sighted and modern as Aaron Burr, whose daughter did learn Latin, whose daughter did read the same history texts, the same political texts, spoke several languages. Um, and he did this for very political reasons. And part of what I try to highlight, most people ignore Burr's wife. His wife was also very progressive, very well-educated, and this is something they both agreed on. Um, so it was a joint operation with Burr and his wife to make this political statement. His enlightenment, he was also very radical and progressive because he was a key advocate of Jeremy Bentham. Now, Jeremy Bentham was a utilitarian. When Burr goes to England, this is after the treason trial, he stays with Bentham and he climbs into his attic and reads every unpublished treatise <laughs> that Jeremy Bentham has written. Um, he, he went to, when he goes to Sweden, he studies Swedish law and becomes an expert in it. I mean, he had an innate curiosity for learning everything. Um, and, and this is often the, the part of the problem we have with fully understanding Burr is that many of his papers were lost. So we don't have the incredible collection of papers as with, you know, the Jefferson papers, which are still being published. Um, unfortunately, his daughter had gotten ill. Um, she was taking a ship that was coming from South Carolina, headed for New York, um, and the ship disappeared and crashed and she died and she was also bringing some of his papers. So we have an incomplete record for Burr. We have, many of his papers were sold off because he didn't have family members to protect his legacy. This is one of the reasons that Hamilton's legacy, uh, despite, as Jay mentioned, he's never going to be a popular figure 
in the way Jefferson has been. Uh, but his family did everything possible to protect his reputation, to save his papers. Uh, and, and that is one of the things we have to realize about history is that the archive determines a lot of what we know about the founders. And if the archive is incomplete, then we know less. Uh, but I was the first person to actually read all of the Burr papers. Most people, most scholars were not interested in understanding Burr because this is the other danger of the founders we tend to resimplify them. We give them labels. Uh, we think that we only need to know a handful of the founders, not everybody who went to the Constitutional Convention. Um, and Burr has been, in a very simplistic way, written off as the villain, written off as the Judas, written off in these silly, dismissive ways that means that you really don't understand the emergence of parties, uh, politics in New York, as I always argue, you can't understand the tension between Burr and Hamilton unless you understand New York politics. Um, and people kind of naively assume that if 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 Hamilton said Burr was a villain or is cunning and dishonest and manipulative, then people took that at face value. Well, who would do that? Who would take a leading opponent of another party and assume their opinions are not you know, politically jaded <laughs> and politically biased. So we've had a lot of bad history, which has reinforced this idea of ignoring Burr. And I think part of understanding his constitutional vision, one of the things you have to understand, this is where Burr parted waves from Jefferson, is that Democrats in Burr's camp, and there, were, there was more than one faction in New York. There was the Schuyler Hamilton faction. There was the Clinton faction. There was the Livingston fashion, faction. This, this was a faction tied to the very large and wealthy Livingston family. Uh, Robert Livingston was cha the chancellor of New York. And then there was the Burr faction. All those other factions are family factions. Burr's was not a family faction. And the, the infighting among those factions, you have to understand to understand the differences between Burr and Hamilton. And in fact, the very first time that Hamilton attacked Burr was when Burr was selected to be senator from New York. And who was he replacing? He was replacing Hamilton's father-in-law. And Hamilton's father-in-law was one of the most important person in Hamilton's life. Uh, he gave Hamilton legitimacy. He married into a powerful family. Uh, he was like a surrogate son to Philip Schuyler. Philip Schuyler was a powerful player in New York politics. And Hamilton needed Schuyler in order to be a political actor uh, on, the, on, the, on the state stage in New York and the national stage. So he was very loyal to Philip Schuyler. And when Burr did that, this is when we first see him kind of attacking Burr. Um, and this is one of the things we have to realize is that Hamilton was an emotional person. He was very loyal. He was more loyal to Philip Schuyler than even to Washington because he also criticized Washington. Schuyler is one of the few people he didn't openly criticize. So we have to understand that the tensions between them initially we have to stop thinking that Hamilton, that Burr is a flip-flopper. This is how Miranda tries to portray him, that he didn't have any ideas. Uh, and this is an idea that other historians have argued, that he was a blank slate. <laughs> well, it's not that hard to figure out what he said, why people supported him. But then it also requires historians to stop just jumping to generalizations and flippant dismissals of Burr and actually do the archival work and read and understand what we do have of Burr's writings and what positions 
and legislation he supported. Because as Jay mentioned, right before the revolution, he supports the Manhattan Company. This bank, not only does it become a bank that is siding with the Republicans, uh, it is a bank that extends loans to people who were poorer merchants that were not getting loans from the Bank of New York. Um, so he realigned class relations around the election of 1800. Burr was a very brilliant lawyer. Um, he had a unique style in the courtroom, a more conversational style. Uh, he was wide, He was admired by Federalists who knew him. He was admired by uh, Republicans in New York and elsewhere. And he also had a following. He was a serious contender. Um, this is what people also don't realize, is that Jefferson basically had to get rid of Burr uh, because he wanted Madison to be his successor. He didn't want Burr to be in line to be considered running for the presidency. Burr had support in New, New England. He had support in Pennsylvania. He had support in South Carolina. So this is one of the things that we tend to ignore is that there were even divisions between New York Republicans and Virginian Republicans. And we know who won that battle. We know there's a Virginia dynasty. <laughs> New Yorkers were always being forced to be vice president as opposed to being president. Um, so understanding Burr requires, first of all, he did embrace commerce. His approach to the economy was a commercial-based one. He believed in state banks. He wrote his own bank charter for the Manhattan Company, which becomes Chase Manhattan. Um, so in that way, we can see there are certain similarities between Hamilton and Burr. He's not anti-financial. He's not an agrarian. Um, he very much embraces the role of finance. But he also realized that banks had become politicized, that they had become monopolized and controlled by the Federalists, um, and therefore he created a bank. And who did he put on the board of his bank? He put Hamilton on the board of his bank. So he had every faction in New York all represented on the board in order for this bank to be established. So there, again, we see how he understands the nature of politics. And when he understands constitutionalism, he was very stridently opposed to the anti-immigrant phase of the Federalist Party. There was an effort to get an amendment to the Constitution that would have denied the right for immigrants to hold elective office. And it was Burr who gave this speech <laughs> in the New York House, claiming that, you know, America is, is this land of opportunity. It's not Hamilton. Hamilton never said anything supportive of immigrants. Um, and, and Burr also, as, I, as you mentioned, believed in reform of the criminal law. He believed in promoting education and promoting education not only did, to young men, not only in terms of expanding it and proving that education was necessary for the republic, but extending it to women, which placed him in a very, very, as I said, small group. The only other person who was close to him in sharing his views on women's potential uh, as potential to be equals in education was Albert Gallatin, uh, that, that foreigner from Switzerland. <laughs> well, that is great. And you've whet our appetites for learning more about Burr and uh, to reading your book, uh, Fallen Father, The Life of Aaron Burr. Um, I think we, uh, alas, do not have time to delve into the relationship between 
Hamilton and John Adams. Um, I am struck by an artifact in the National Constitution Center's new Hamilton exhibit, which uh, is a letter published by Hamilton in 1800 in which he questions Adams's competence to be president. Uh, and I have all sorts of questions for both of you, including why these two Federalists would question each other's competence and why a man we think of as a uh, a Hamiltonian-style monarchist uh, who uh, proposed, this is President Adams when he was vice president, uh, titles like his elective majesty and his mightiness uh, for the president uh, would have clashed with Hamilton. But to learn more about that, we're going to have to read your books and come to the National Constitution Center's uh, new exhibit on Hamilton and Madison. So I'm going to end by asking each of you uh, to give our closing arguments, which are three-minute summaries of all the learning and light you've been spreading in this in this great conversation. And I guess I'll just ask the following question. Uh, we've talked about the constitutional legacies of Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, and Burr. Today, as a constitutional matter, uh, do we li live in the America of Burr, Jefferson, Madison, or Hamilton? Uh, Jay, the first uh, closing argument is to you. Well, thanks again for having me on this podcast. It's been really enjoyable. And I, I would just comment sardonically, I guess, that if, if Adams were alive and, and were listening and discovered that he had been left out, he would probably grumble <laughs> that it was typical uh, that he would be overlooked, um, such as his fate, I suppose. Um, I would say it's, it's a mix that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you go back 100 years, even more recently, uh, there's always been futurists, right? There's always been people who have looked into the future and sort of seen a vision of the future. Um, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, the main sort of futurist sort of item was Back to the Future Part 2, where they go into the future. And, and I was watching it a couple months ago with my children who, who love the movie. And it was really interesting to see what they got right and sort of envisioning the future and what they got wrong. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of pegged the internet, but they, they, they were wrong about hoverboards, for instance. Just sort of interesting <laughs> to see. Um, and I think that in some respects, it's sort of, that's what you can say about all of these founders, right? That the founders were on the cusp of multiple revolutions that transformed in durable, fundamental, profound ways uh, life in the entire world. I mean, it, it, and there there was an economic revolution, the industrial revolution, and now we're in the midst of a technological revolution. We have the sort of the spread of, um, you know, liberalism, um, you know, classical liberalism, the notion that individuals are accorded with basic rights. And, you know, the disagreements in, the, in our politics are basic, you basically sort of revolve around what those rights require of us as opposed to whether or not, you know, people are... Uh, deserve respect for their rights. You know, there's sort of this liberal revolution, a democratic revolution, the idea that legitimate government comes from popular consent as opposed to military force or bribery or, you know, hereditary titles. I mean, all of these things were in the process of just beginning when these men were occupying the main stage of the United States. Uh, and so I think in their way, each of them captured an element of what was to come, but it would have been impossible for anybody to have, to have imagined what was really going to happen. I mean, you know, in 1785, nobody is going to imagine the combustible engine, for instance, right? Nobody is going to imagine, um, you know, penicillin. I mean, they couldn't even imagine, um, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, basic mechanized agriculture, for instance, right? Um, so, so there was all sorts of things that were just about to happen that were going to change the entire structure of life for humanity. Um, and so I think each of them captured some element of it. I mean, Hamilton is very modern in his understanding of ec economics as a way to harmonize disparate interests and to and to solidify a union that, you know, it's really in Hamilton, we get this sort of very American idea that, you know, we don't have to like each other, but so long as we're engaging in commerce with one another, we can live peaceably. I mean, that's sort of a very Hamiltonian notion. Madison sort of captures, um, you know, the, the sort of idea that, again, is sort of very prevalent in our in our discourse that, you know, politics is messy and frustrating, but it's essential that well-ordered political conflict that sort of cools the passions of and ultimately prevents bad laws from coming into effect. I mean, we struggle with the sort of regime that we're in, but, um, you know, when we compare it historically to other regimes, it's, it's, it's a lot nicer. Um, you know, Jefferson, I think Jefferson sort of captured in his own ways the sort of the, 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 the coming revolution of politics popular sovereignty um, and 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 Burr for his for his progressivism um, you know recognizing the importance of this you know reading Mary Wollstonecraft for instance I mean it's just sort of a, a remarkable you know thing that he was able to see that his fellows were not and also I mean just you know, as I mentioned, that he was able to mo mobilize lower lower income, lower socioeconomic groups to beat Hamilton in Hamilton's own backyard. He saw a vision of the future. I mean, sort of anticipated machine politics in in a way, uh, which in turn, I mean, machine politics have gotten sort of like Burr himself have sort of gotten a bad reputation over the course of you know history, uh, but were integral in sort of bringing otherwise you know overlooked constituencies into the political process. So, I mean, I don't think that we are living in an America that any one of them would have, you know, identified. But I, I think that each of them in their way, um, you know, uh, saw aspects of it. And, and also the fact that they argued uh, among each other and in, in, in so, so many profound ways sort of also speaks to, you know, despite the wonderful material advantages that we have now, uh, that they didn't have then, uh, that, you know, we are still sort of uncomfortable with, uh, with modern, modern life. And that for these men who appreciated aspects of this aspect of modern life and that aspect of modern life, it wasn't like, uh, you know, they sat down and put all the pieces of the puzzle together, um, and saw the future, but they, you know, sort of raged at each other through the peaceable means of political war. Um, and I, I think that in and, is, in and of itself is sort of a metaphor for how, uh, modern life actually is. So I would give it a sort of a four-way tie. Excellent. Thank you for that. Nancy, last word to you. Uh, do we live in the America as a constitutional matter of Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Burr, or you can add that underappreciated uh, president since you've just written about him, John Adams? Well, that's what's interesting. I mean, what we have to realize is that often we want to turn the founders into prophets, like they have magical powers and somehow they could anticipate everything that would emerge in the future and they had an answer to it. Well, that's clearly not the case. They were 18th and early 19th century men and they couldn't imagine the world that we live in. Um, one of the things that's interesting about John Adams, and I think this is one of the themes that Andrew Burstein and I are dealing with in our book, 
is that both John Adams and John Quincy Adams have a useful critique of democracy. And this is one of the problems that we've been facing with right now. Often uh, we just praise democracy and say it's wonderful without actually figuring out if it works. <laughs> or what do we even mean when we say we have a democracy? It's, it's as we know, the structure of our government is not set up at all for democracy. Essentially, we still have a mixed government. We have a president who's become far more powerful uh, than anyone imagined. I, I think Hamilton might like that, uh, but who, who can tell? Uh, we also have a, we have the Electoral College, which is an artifact from the 18th century, which undermines the ability for us to have a democracy. Uh, the idea that when one votes that the Electoral College and, and when states institute winner takes all, that essentially means that if you were living in a state uh, where you don't vote, didn't vote for the winner, your vote doesn't count. So we have a lot of things that undermine the ability for us to claim we're a democracy. And then we have the bigger problem, which is the role of the mass media. I mean, every time there's a revolution in the mass media, you look at FDR and the way he used radio. You look at Eisenhower, who is the first president to make a televised ad during his presidential campaign. And if you look at the role of the Internet or this idea, as I said, the way in which Facebook is being used to, to get people's news and that lies and distortions seem to get more coverage, more hits on Twitter than the truth. So we still have this basic problem, and this is one of the problems that John Adams did address, this problem of how can you find a way so that individuals actually understand their self-interest, they are able to get reliable information, and then they're able to use that information to influence uh, their elected officials. And this is much more complicated than we've been willing to acknowledge. Uh, simply saying that we want an educated citizen, citizen citizenry, this was kind of Jefferson's ideal. Well, as I said, he couldn't even achieve that in Virginia. There was much more developed forms of education and democracy in Massachusetts because they actually funded education. And on top of that, they had town meetings. So they had bodies, more public bodies where people could express their views, which was not the pattern in Virginia. So I think one of the things I'd like us to come away with is to stop spouting generalizations about democracy. It doesn't matter where you want to say if it's the greatest democracy or we have a democracy. It's to actually figure out, do we have a democracy? What kind of democracy do we have? What are the limitations on that democracy? Um, how, why do certain people in our society have so much more power in influencing legislation, such as lobbyists, than an average voter can have? And we can go to Burr and say, yes, one of the key solutions is to find new ways to mobilize people who've been silenced, who haven't been able to influence politics, to get them uh, to have some influence, which we've seen recently over the gun issue, uh, that now it's high school teenagers who suddenly are at the center of the news. Uh, but even that, we know one of the problems with the mass media today is that even when there are these reforms, they can be very quickly subverted uh, because people with money <laughs> have a lot more influence than people without money. 
Um, so I think that what we should take from the founders is that they recognized that, and this is something that Governor Moore said, that the Constitution was faulty. It's not perfect. Um, and we have to recognize that, and this is where I would take from Jefferson, you know, every generation has to reassess the structure of the government, the way power structures are operating in this country. We have to reassess who's left out, who doesn't have a voice. Um, but we're never going to kind of completely redraft the Constitution. It's always going to be with us. It's something we have to work with. But we need to have uh, constant intelligent discussions, as I think the discussion we've had here today about <laughs> what is the legacy of the founders, what is the legacy of the Constitution, and how we do have to make adjustments for modern circumstances that the founders could have never, ever imagined. Thank you so much, Nancy Eisenberg and Jay Cost, for what was indeed an intelligent discussion about the founders and their legacy in the highest spirit of the We the People podcast, which is precisely the kind of public education about the Constitution that both of you have done in an exemplary fashion. Uh, we the People listeners learn more about the constitutional clashes that shaped a nation by coming to the National Constitution Center. I know you're spread across the country and in fact across the world, but if you can come to our beautiful museum of We the People in Philadelphia, you can see the artifacts that I've talked about and be inspired by the clashes between Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, Burr, and Adams. Jay Cost and Nancy Eisenberg, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ogana Etze. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>